Forte, and for four years of my life, I was part of a cult. The organization looked nice and sweet on the outside, but it did a lot of damage to many people on the inside. After sharing my experiences with others, they helped me come to terms with the fact that we were in a cult, and now I speak out about that trauma while giving others a chance to do the same. Welcome to my podcast series, I Was in a Cult. Welcome back to I Was in a Cult. It's your boy Forte. It was the year 2007, and I was in my third year in the cult. And we were all chilling out in one of the hotel rooms. One of the times where we could all, the guys and girls, can be in the same room is because we were watching something together. And uh, we always watched American Idol. And during this time, we were watching American Idol, and by far, at the time, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite performers had actually just um, did Kiss from a Rose. And the white dude, I'm just like, what is going on here? Like, it's kind of crazy. Um and I come to learn that this dude's name is Chris Sly. And Chris Sly came in, did his thing, made it to Hollywood. Uh, he didn't win. But, uh, you know, when you get into the, you know, the top 10, um, that's kind of a big deal. So it was pretty dope to see him, you know, make it into, you know, to Hollywood and do all that or whatever. And then, you know, I kind of followed him. Um as much as I could since then. One of the dudes that was in my uh, band when I was at Liberty University, I did my own um, music and stuff. And one of the guys who played guitar for me, um, he actually played guitar when um, I proposed to my wife. Um, his name is Jake. He did. He had an opportunity to um, lead worship at a church. And Chris Sly was a part of that church. He was leading. Um, I think he was a pastor at that church. And um, so it was so pretty cool that I'm like, man, the dude I was watching on American Idol is now, you know, close with one of my boys. And, you know, and uh, it's, it's just pretty dope just to kind of see that or whatever. And then eventually uh, uh, struck up a friendship with him and um, I got him to come on and share his experience as well. Now, he shares his experience with the church that he was a part of, and he also shares a little bit of his time, um, I believe um with uh another university that has been mentioned before so what i want to do is give him the opportunity to share his experience as well but i also want to go ahead and put a disclaimer this episode deals with domestic violence murder and suicide it also deals with sexual assault. So just to reiterate that and hit them all again, sexual assault, domestic violence, murder, suicide. If any of these things are a trigger for you, please do not listen to this episode. It is going to hit heavy. Um, we did this interview months ago and I can still remember the conversation and it was an intense one. So, after this brief musical interlude, we're going to jump right back into it. All right. Welcome back to I Was in a Cult. It's your boy Forte. And once again, we got another uh, pretty neat, interesting uh, interview opportunity here. Um, one thing that I have definitely tried when... Um, doing this season it's just you know branching out and giving others an opportunity to share their own experiences now again everyone that i interview here not everybody is going to say that they identify as being a part of a cult and this season hasn't really been more about the cult practices it's just been a more more about toxic um just very 
not so great traumatic experiences within Christian realms or religious realms altogether. And, um, and this story or this interview that uh, I'm bringing up is one that I saw on TikTok. It's someone I've been friends with for the last couple of years. Um, someone that most of you listening to the podcast, if you followed American Idol, you might know this individual as well as they got the opportunity to compete on the show. Um, they actually got um, through Hollywood, actually got to the final 12 and, uh, you know, they didn't win, but they, you know, they did a pretty good job. You get down to, you know, <laughs> you get into the final 12, you're, you're doing pretty good there. Um, well, this individual also has an experience of their own. Um, they went to Bob Jones. I have another Bob Jones uh, student here that is uh, sharing their own experience. And, um, you know, just kind of just want to learn about them overall and just kind of hear about uh, their own story. And I just want to give them an opportunity to do that. So if you don't mind, if you will, welcome to the IWIAC universe, my friend, Chris Sly. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, man? Chris, I'm just glad that, you know, you, uh, you agreed to it and everything like that. And, you know, like I said, I've been a fan of fan of you from, uh, from back in the day when uh, we were in the cult, you know, the one time a week where we could all be in the same hotel room because they literally split, split up the guys and the girls. We were in the room watching American Idol. And I think it was, uh, while you were auditioning. So it was right before you got into, uh, Hollywood, I think, as uh, when we were watching, um, watching it all together or whatever. And we were just like amazed, like, where did this, like, where did this voice come from? You know, like you, it's just, you had a voice that was just unexpected for the song that you sung. I know it was a seal kiss, uh, kiss for Rose. I was just like, wait, what? You know, it's just like, it was a surprising, but um, I, I thought you did a really good job in that. And obviously just being able to follow along with you. I think one of my buddies was, um, you know, as you got into church and stuff like that, one of my buddies had the opportunity um, to be a part of your worship uh, ministry at one point. Um, and uh, it's just, you know, just, learning about you hearing from you and then you know just becoming connected through you know social media and stuff like that's just been pretty cool so again just thank you for uh you know uh taking some time to kind of share your experience here on the show uh, we really do appreciate it yeah man it's good to be here i've listened to a few of the episodes and um i didn't gr it wasn't the same kind of cult that uh you were in where uh it was yours seemed like it was very very uh this like very organized sort of thing and you know, they kept people separate and they did all that kind of stuff. For me, yeah. um, I grew up in the IFB, which is Independent Fundamental Baptist, um, which I would definitely classify as a cult. Um, I think that um, it's a cult in a different sort of way than like you think of like the David Koresh, you know, like that kind of stuff. Right. It's more of control and, you know, they, they guilt you into, you know, my family was at church basically seven days a week. You know, my dad was a missionary pastor. And so I grew up, you know, every, I mean, literally seven days a week, we were at church doing something. We had a Christian school. You had to have your kids at Christian school. So it was different. And yet I think the root of it was probably the same. It's rooted in fear and being scared that, you know, you won't be able to control your children, that you won't be able to control the people that are a part of your church, that you won't be able to do that sort of thing. And my, I was really lucky in that my dad um, is probably the most balanced IFB pastor uh, that I, that was in that thing. Like he never fell for like the dumbs for a lot of the dumb stuff, but like, you know, still my mom wasn't allowed to wear pants. Women weren't allowed to do any sort of leadership in church. Um, you know, it was a lot of stuff like that. And he genuinely believed that stuff. Um, and so I think that I'm grateful that it wasn't just some, like my dad is not a misogynist and yet he advocated for misogynist uh, views a lot, you know, through mm -hmm. this thing. And my dad is not a, uh, is not a racist. Uh, I, well, what I would say is that I think that my dad probably um, being from the South probably was at some level racist, but not prejudiced. You know, half our church growing up was African-American because we worked with the military. And, um, and so uh, growing up, I was able to see my dad be really consistent in a lot of things. And yet the control that was exacted upon uh, him from like, from the people above him and the way that our home church sort of uh sort of acted really was very cult-like um this place in kansas city called ego heights baptist church which is i think the story that you saw on tiktok that sort of uh interested you in me being on the on the program 
Yeah, man. Um, it was, yeah, it was a, a few things there. And uh, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that. Cause some of the things you just shared there, I had no idea. Um, and you know, and a big thing is, cause I, I think about it too. Um, yeah, your, your cult experience is not the same as mine, but obviously we don't try to compare them. Obviously it's not a competition right. because trauma, <laughs> church trauma is never something that anyone wants to compete with. You know, there's always going to be levels and you're always going to think like that. Um, a couple of episodes back, uh, my friend Loxy, you know, kind of shared her experience. She was working with a um, uh, a Christian music theater that uh, was very traumatic, but like the stories and everything that I've heard about what's been going on there, I mean, it just dwarfs everything that happened with the organization that I was a part of. However, we still have a lot of trauma. We still have a lot of things that we've gone through, you know, the, a lot of things, you know, like, I mean, just a lot of things that was just drilled into our minds and everything like that, that are, people are still trying to deprogram to this day. So, you know, I mean, yeah. So, at the, at the, you know, at the end of the day, even though our experiences may not have been, you know, the same or maybe not even on the same level, you know, at the end of the day, as long as you're getting healing for whatever it is that you went through and you're able to, you know, move away from that teaching and stuff like that, that's the most important thing, you know, so. Yeah, I think I think for me, um, it's sort of like I always hated it when people would be like, oh, first world problems when they, you know, were saying that, you know, the they got their order wrong at the pizza place or they got their order wrong at Starbucks or whatever. I just thought that was always stupid because people's problems are people's problems. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Now, granted, you know, if you're then comparing your problems to living in a third world country, then we're going to have to have a discussion about how we compare. But if you're saying like, hey, this is a hard thing and I need to work through grieving this loss, you know, I wanted a white mocha and I got this other thing that's not a white mocha. Yes, it's a very small grief, but you still have to like grieve in order to actually deal with the emotions that you have. And I think that when it comes to uh, religious traumatic experiences, I think that sometimes people often will look at their experience and go, well, it's not as bad as this thing over here, so it must not be that bad. Right. And I don't need to deal with that thing. And yet they're living in ways that are actually causing their bodies to say that they are in trauma. And yet they can never figure out why uh, they're not dealing with in why they keep having these problems. And really it's they're not dealing with the same because they think that because, you know, their religious trauma is not David Koresh level that somehow that, you know, it's not really that bad. And I go, well, no, it's not as bad as David Koresh, but that's not the point, you know, Mm -hmm. like no matter what we go through, if it causes trauma on our systems, then we need to unpack that and figure out how to deal with that stuff and then figure out how we interact with the world because of that trauma. So, yeah, absolutely. And I I think at the end of the day, like regardless of the level, like you said, I mean, it's just a matter of you have to go through the grief, you have to process it, you have to be able to talk to someone about that, you have to be able to talk about it. And it's very difficult to, especially with someone who doesn't experience it, who has not been in in it, and even sometimes those who have been in it, but they've been at something at at a larger level. But let's focusing more on the people who have not experienced what you've experienced, what I've experienced, when you try to share the stuff that you're, go, you know, you're going through, and they either try to downplay it or discard it or try to, you know, make you feel like, okay, you're, you're overthinking it and things like that. I mean, that's, that that's, you know, that, that's a difficult thing to, to deal with. You know, I mean, like, if I share my experience with someone, then I am trusting them. And I'm, I feel like I'm, it, they are safe enough for me to tell them my story and experience. And the last thing I, I'm expecting is for this person to say, well, it wasn't that bad. And right. it is difficult, though. You know, sometimes it is difficult to deal with it when you have people that are in the same organization or realm that you're in that also try to downplay it. Like, I mean, um, in one of the episodes in season one, I mentioned this because we had a moment where uh, we had this big Facebook group and one of my friends posted something and all they asked was, Hey, name a time where you were forced to, you know, do something in the organization, even though you had an injury or something like that. And you were forced to push through it because they weren't going to let you go to the hospital and stuff. And people started arguing. Like, I mean, it got really bad. Like people were like, yeah, they let me go home, but you know, I'm not going to sit and cry and complain, even if they didn't, because that was 
a decade ago? Why are we still living in the past? And it was just like, sure. whoa, that's where you decided to take that. And that one discussion blew up to something so big. We had one people, you know, people on one side saying, y'all are focusing on the negative too much. Think about the positive. Think about all the good things that we did. But then you have other people on the other side saying, oh, we remember all the good stuff. And then the other group we're in, we talk about those things too. But you know what? We also talk about how we were disrespected, how we were gaslit, how we were manipulated, how we went through all of these things because you cannot just focus on the good stuff and act like the bad things never happen. There's still people to this day that are having to go through therapy because of things that happened over almost two decades ago. Right. And other people are just saying, focus on the, on the positive. But like, but you were there when things were happening that were negative and you were one of the people that the negative stuff was happening to. How is it that you are now forgetting these things and you're saying it in a not so nice way focus on a positive like i mean you know it's, it's not great so you got people that are either trying to um write off what you're saying and how you experience it but then you have other people that are just trying to you know brush it off and just be like yeah it's just you know deal with it you know leave it in the past or whatever like it's not something to bring back up and it's just like well when are we going to be able to talk about what happened so that we can heal? Because a lot of them are just like, you know what, I've gotten through it. There was a lot of bad stuff happened, but, you know, I prayed God has let me through these things. And other people was just like, look, I've just decided that I'm not going to let that define me. I'm going to move on. And it's just like, okay, cool. Help us get there. Instead of writing off what we're saying, can you help us reach the level that you're at? Because instead, what it sounds like is you're just saying, shut up. We don't want to hear about it. It's like, that's not helping us either. We want to get to where you are, but it's just a matter of they, you know, they don't want to necessarily take that effort um, to be able to <laughs> help us get to that point. You know, it can be frustrating at times. Right. Well, I think when you understand how there's really two ways that people interact with trauma is that you either live with it as a felt sort of thing, which it sounds like some of the people in your group have lived in this sort of felt thing of felt need of, hey, I feel this pain. And I think it has to do with this failure and this thing that happened to me and this trauma that uh, has happened to me. And until I fix that, until I can figure out how to work through that, it is always going to be felt. The other way that people interact with trauma is that they uh, either pretend it doesn't happen because they don't actually want to interact with it, or they actually forget like, um, my wife and I have been in uh, therapy together for, I've been in therapy for about eight and a half years. My wife has been in therapy for five and a half of those years and we were in it together. And our therapist that we were with for five and a half years up until uh, about a year and a half ago, she um, she does trauma childhood trauma therapy mixed with marriage therapy. It's a really, really uh, interesting sort of uh, thing that she does. And um, there were so many things that as my wife began to work through that she would remember and would be brought up that she had not thought about in 30 years or 25 years or 35 years. Um, and then she would bring that up to her brothers who are two and two years old and three years older than her. And they should have been at the age that they would remember this stuff. Cause it was like beatings that were given to them. And what was fascinating was how often they just, refused to remember and they tried to remember uh, their dad in a way that was positive. And they would say to Sarah, why are you focused on the negative? Why are you focused on the negative? And literally for Sarah, my wife, her system quite literally shut down. Like she was shut down to the place that she did not allow herself to feel for basically most of her life. And, um, and so the way that she was able to pull out of that trauma was that she remembered, she thought through it and worked through it. And so sometimes with those people, um, I actually have a lot of uh, grace and empathy for them because I understand that when they act in that way, they're really acting out of a place of trauma. Now, that didn't, what, what I don't want you to hear, I don't want you to hear that they deserve to be let off the hook. Yeah, for doing okay. that for doing it yeah. what i'm not saying is that they that you should keep those kinds of people in your life if they're causing for you to have triggers around your trauma because mm -hmm. they refuse to acknowledge it that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying though is that i have empathy for those kind of people because of i understand that that's actually a far worse way to deal with your trauma because mm -hmm. it um that's where so many sicknesses come from, you know, like is literally like bottling all this stuff up and it causes physical harm to your body by doing it. So I think that 
Um, cause I, I had the same thing, like, um, growing up in my childhood, growing up and then going to Bob Jones university for, you know, four years. Um, I have all of these friends from high school and college that are still either still in it or still like close enough to it. Even the ones that are like not in it anymore have a hard time sort of acknowledging what actually happened to us. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll jump into my story with my ex-girlfriend. Um, I, my parents were missionaries. And so we lived over in Germany and, um, we, the way that it worked in the IFB is that you had to have a sending church. And so basically you had a church that you would kind of call your home church. It didn't necessarily have to be the church that was your home church when you started deputation. Right. So you'd go out and you'd visit all, you know, we visited probably 800 churches over like three and a half years. And, um, we were just on the road constantly. I mean, sometimes two churches in a day kind of thing. And, um, we went to all these churches and my dad, uh, was really attracted to this very charismatic leader, um, named Tom Suter. I mean, one of the, like, um, I like, you think of like the, like the ultimate cult leader, like he's just a guy who's so smooth. He's an ex cop, um, you know, like super, super, um, just classy, you know, good looking guy, well-kept always, you know, never, you know, always iron perfectly, always, you know, just everything that you think of as like the perfect sort of example of what a good quote unquote Christian man looks like. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and the church was huge. Like, I mean, I think in ni- in 1986 or whatever, when we first went there, 85, it was like over a thousand people, which for a church back then was like massive. And especially for IFB churches, it was just huge. And, um, and they had this bustling, uh, Christian school and, and my dad was just like, man, something is going on here and we need to be a part of this. And so that became our home church. And so the, what that means is that the elders of that church have say over you in almost every way. Um, any sort of counseling has to come through that church. So like when my parents would have marriage troubles, they would have to do counseling with, um, you know, over the phone. Or, I mean, there was a couple of times where literally like our, the pastor and his wife flew over to Germany just to do like marriage counseling and my parents had to pay for the plane tickets and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and so it was, um, it was just in a lot of ways, it was very good because my parents finally had, they felt like people who believed in them and they gave us the large, like my parents, I think at the time when we went overseas, I think they made like $2,000 a month or something, you know, which was like nothing, uh, especially in the German economy. Um, and I think Eagle Heights at the time paid 800 of that. And so we had all these churches that would give like 25, 50, $10 a month. And then this church believed in us so much that they gave us $800. And really it was just a form of, you know, control. And that was always on a carrot. Like, we're going to pull this back. We're going to pull this back. If you don't do the things that we want you to do. And so, my dad, um, you know, was, uh, in this thing. Well, Tom had a daughter named Jenny who was a year older than me. And, um, we, uh, we kind of grew up together and I remember like feeling like something was weird. Like, you know, uh, you know, all kids play doctor at some point, but like, I remember like as an eight year old, she, or I was probably eight or nine. No, I was probably seven and she was probably eight. Like she, um, we, I remember I never played doctor personally, like, and especially with a girl. And like, I remember as an eight year old or seven year old, like her doing this thing where we played doctor and she actually put my fingers inside of her, like inside of her Mm -hmm. as like, and then was like rubbing up and down. And she was like, Ooh, do you like that? Do you like that? It's like an eight year old. And I was just like, what are you doing? This is like, you know, as a seven year old, nothing sexual about this. And I just thought that was weird. And, um, and, but she was like very sexualized from a very young age, in spite of the fact that it's like this anti-sexual culture and, um, come to find out she had been like, uh, she had been, uh, like molested when she was like six. And so I guess this was sort of how she expressed herself in this way. And, so um we were just friends and we would write back and forth and you know then my junior year of of high school 
I had this experience over in Germany, living over in Germany where um, I had this girlfriend and we, you know, as good Christian kids decided that we were going to try to have sex. Well, we got caught trying to have sex. And, um, you know, obviously that's the biggest no-no in the world, in the Christian culture, trying to have sex. And I mean, it was like a huge, huge, huge deal in our church and in our school. And it was like a whole thing. And so I, uh, I basically like bought in, you know, hardcore into like, you know, oh, I'm going to be pure. I'm not going to do anything. You know, this is, I've got to stay pure. And, uh, in fact, I was a virgin when I got married, you know, at 25. So, you know, eight years later was a virgin. And, um, and so I come back to the States for my senior year of high school and, um, Jenny and I had sort of started, you know, like there was some interest. She had just graduated high school and, um, we were riding back and forth in my junior year. And then when I came back at quarter, it sort of ignited into a relationship and, um, and so I tried to do it right. Like I went and asked her dad if I could, you know, date her, you know, if I could court her really. Right. And, um, you know, and so we did everything right. And I was like all about doing it the right way. Well, all of a sudden, some of that same stuff that I remembered from, you know, when we played doctor, when we were seven and eight, you know, 10 years later, Jenny is like, like we went to this thing called the Bill Gothard seminar. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with that. Bill Gothard was like, this dude who like he taught the life principle and it was like the life principle institute or something like that was what is a christian life institute that's what it was okay and very cultish like it's like a single dude telling parents how to raise their kids like oh, a single dude telling married people how to be married you know like and he came to find out that this guy was like molesting and sexually harassing girls all along for years and years he finally lost his ministry like 10 years ago well, we went to this Bill Gothard seminar. It was like a really big deal. It was down at like downtown. And as we're driving, um, you know, typically you weren't allowed to sit in a dark van next to somebody of the opposite sex because you might touch. Well, Jenny came and sat next to me. And as we're sitting there, she starts holding my hand. And I'm like, okay, like, I guess holding hands isn't that bad. Well, then she takes my hand and she puts it up her shirt and, you know, onto her boob. And I'm just like, oh, gosh, you know, like as a 17 year old kid who's just had this like experience where he's like vowed to be pure. So I pull my hand back. She takes it back and puts it. Then she puts it down her pants. And I'm just like, oh, God, like, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I like pulled and like, you know, cross my arms, you know, and then she's like grabbing my crotch, like as we're driving in this dark van. And I'm just like so uncomfortable. And um, and this kind of progresses into she's like i want to have sex i want to do this here's how we can do it here's the places we can go like here's how we're going to do this thing and you know as really i was trying to be a good christian kid i was just like jenny like i'm i can't do this like i don't want to do this this makes me feel uncomfortable i mean at this point it was to the point of like legitimately like i was being assaulted you know like sexually assaulted by by this girl And at one point, like no one, and so I try to tell like my best friend about this and you have to understand like Jenny was like in people's mind was like a cherub angel. Like she was a pastor's daughter. She could do no wrong. There was no way that this was true. I was making this up. No one believed me. Well, one day I told my friend Ryan, um, who was like my closest friend in Kansas city. I told him about this whole thing. And he was like, I don't believe you. Well, one day we're sitting out and she goes, she says to me, hey, would you like to fuck me? Now, you got to understand, Christian, you know, IFB, you never, you didn't even say like screw, you know. And she dropped the F-bomb. And she was like, would you want to fuck me with Ryan right there? And I was like, what? No. Oh, my God. She was like, would you want (laughs) to, she literally said, would you want to fuck me in the ass while he's fucking me in the pussy? And I'm like, are you talking about so then like i go in my phone rings you know again we're you know it's 1995 and like the real phone rings so i have to go inside to answer it and i pick it up and it's my mom and dad they're at a deacons meeting like an elder meeting for the thing and uh and as i'm talking on the phone to my mom as she's asking if everything like checking in she comes and pulls my pants off 
grabs me by the crotch and then begins to like suck me at with my best friend right here. And I'm just like, Oh my God. Like trying to talk to my mom, like going like, you know, and I'm 17, like I'm a virgin. Like, of course, like I'm hard as a rock immediately. And so like, I'm trying to fight her off while, and she's like, no, you like it. You like it. You like it. You like, it, you know? And so finally I get off the phone and I'm like, Jenny, this is not okay. So like the next day I break up with her and I was just like, this is not okay. I can't do this. I really, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody, but you, you know, this is not okay. Well, Jenny went on to have some sort of sexual relationship with eight other guys in the school. Um, now let's not even take into consideration that they're all underage and she's 19, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like it was right. a different 1995. It was different. We thought about things differently. I'm not saying it was different. We thought about things differently back then, but like the ethical ramifications of that are just like ridiculous looking back at it now. Well, it finally comes out and it's like a really big deal. And we go through this whole, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was crazy, man. Like, yeah. It was like half the school like was involved somehow tangentially to this thing. And I was like patient zero. And finally it comes out that I was patient zero. And everybody thinks that I am to blame for Jenny going and having sex with half the school. Wow. And also ha like causing other couples to have sex because Jenny's having sex. So other couples are having sex because they think it's okay because Jenny, so like I'm to blame for all of this and because I could have stopped it if I had told someone. And I was like, I did tell someone and no one freaking believed me. Like, you know, you didn't tell any authorities. Yes, actually I did. And no one believed me. And so, uh, anyway, Jenny gets put basically on house arrest for the next, uh, three or four years. Damn. And I go off to college, you know, it is what it is. I, you know, I didn't really deal with the trauma of what happened, you know, but I got kicked off the basketball team. I got kicked out of the play. I got kicked out of choir. Like I got kicked off of every extracurricular. They let me graduate, but barely, you know, kind right. of thing. And, um, so I go off to college, not understanding the trauma that I have around like leadership now, like, because I don't trust that leadership has good for me, you know, ever. Well, fast forward, um, is about four and a half years later. Um, I get a phone call from my mom and she's like weeping. And, you know, by this point I have a cell phone. She's like weeping. And she says, Chris, you need to get to Kansas city. Now I'm in freaking Greenville, South Carolina. Right. And I was like, I'm not coming to Kansas city. What are you talking about? And she's like, um, someone killed Jenny Souter. And I was like, what? Oh, man. So I'm like, oh, okay. Well, then my mom is like calling me every couple hours for the next two days as stuff starts to come out. So this is sort of the story that I've pieced together with asking a bunch of people about the story is Jenny was under house arrest for uh, three full years. Mm-hmm. After like, basically they locked her, like they had a garage, they closed off the garage. They, um, put a room in there with a lock that locked from the outside and she would go down at night. They would lock her in. They would let her out the next morning. I mean, like le legitimately like house arrest. And, um, <coughs> she, she did not go anywhere without her parents. So three years in, they let her start doing minor things, you know, like, she could go get groceries. She could, and then maybe like six months later, she got a job. Well, she got a job and she met a Southern Baptist boy, which is a big no-no in our, like IFB looks at the Southern Baptist as like the devil. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> super, you know, super, uh, we saw the Southern Baptist as like liberals and <laughs> um, like legitimately. Yeah, yeah. Crazy looking back at it. So um, she starts dating this guy behind her parents back and she comes home one day and she says, you know, you got to think now she's 24 at this point and 23 or 24. She comes home and says, Hey, I'm going to get an apartment. I've got an apartment and I'm going to move out. I've got my car. I've got my job and I'm going to work towards marriage. 
by all accounts, there was not anything untoward going on. Like literally they were having, they had an above board relationship. They weren't having sex apparently, but because he was a Southern Baptist, then the wife of Tom Souter, uh, Mary Lee Souter, um, she wrote in her diary that her daughter was going to ruin her husband's ministry. Now to put some context into that, a couple of years before, one of the one of the elders, I, th- I believe he was the head elder. Um, his daughter had graduated from college and had taken a job at a church. And he was removed from being an elder because they believed that um, if a daughter was not married, then she had to live under her father's like roof mm-hmm. and live with her father and work, you know, there at home. Even though she was in ministry, even that didn't matter. He was removed from eldership. Wow. And so you got to think like the pastor's, uh, the pastor's daughter moving out so that she can date a Southern Baptist is like far worse. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary Lee wrote under suitor that she can't let Jenny get away with ruining her husband's ministry. Jenny had tried to ruin it before. And so she took a six shooter and she a six shooter revolver um and went down and shot her six times reloaded and then shot her three more times and then killed herself so that her husband didn't lose her ministry his ministry yeah so that was like a real thing that happened you can go look up uh you know in north kansas city in uh i think it was november of 2000 or 2001 i can't remember but, um, and so I go out to this, dude, I go out to this funeral and it was the most surreal thing I've ever experienced because I'm still at Bob Jones at this point, man. Like, right. it's not like, it's not like I'm off in some like totally different thing where this is crazy town. But like, as I come back, having grown up for four years, I come back to this place and I, and I watch as Tom Suter tries to resign and the elders won't let him resign. They say, no, we need you to be our pastor. Take a sabbatical. We need oh you to lead it. Like this, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Right. And, and that was sort of, I remember having like this very like um, visceral reaction to that weekend. My brother and I were driving back. Uh, my brother is three years younger than me. His name is John. John and I were driving back in his little red Honda hatchback. And we were quiet most of the trip. You know, it's like a 16-hour trip back to, you know, to South Carolina. And as we came back, I remember both of us sort of just going like, man, if this is what that is, that I don't think this is for me. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't what this is supposed to be. And at the time, my brother sort of let began a deconstruction. I don't think he would have known to call it deconstruction back then. Right. It, that was like the, one of the beginnings of the deconstruction for him. Um, you know, I think, uh, he would mark some other things for me. It was not deconstruction, but it was deconstruction away from the IFB. I was like, I have to get out of here. I don't care what it takes. I have to, I have to be somewhere different. And so then I chose, um, a string of churches that I slowly would realize each time were just its own version of a cult. Like, mm-hmm. I think that that's the thing that I struggle with, with the American church currently is that it's really no different than when you dig down and you get to the bottom of it. It's really no different than Tom Suter and the IFB. It's just about power and um, I think that there are definitely good pastors. I'm not saying that there aren't good people who are pastors. I'm not saying that there aren't good leaders who are pastors, but I think if it takes you, you know, 99 to get to the one that is a good church, then something's wrong with the system, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that that's a problem is that we refuse to, we refuse to deal with stuff systemically which is a problem with, you know, in general with uh, specifically white people, we were, you know, in general, we refuse to deal with stuff systemically because the systems have been rigged in our favor so, so much and so often yeah. that we refuse to deal with stuff systemically. We see things as, you know, personal freedom and we see things as personal rather than systemic. And until you're the one who goes through 
the system chewing you up and spitting you out. And then all of a sudden you start to go, Oh, well, wait a second. Like, you know, I wasn't pulled over at a, uh, you know, Jake Packett, who I think, you know, um, is, a, is, was lived with me. That's the one I'm, I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Jake, um, Jake lived with me. And um, I remember at one point, one of the, one of the like craziest experiences for me was, you know, Jake is a clean cut, good looking, african-american dude who grew up in a white home yep and um he uh drives a very white sports car he did at the time like i mean it's like a white kid sports car and he um he was like i mean he dressed preppy he was like he was like you know i i said i I regret saying this because I've learned, you know, since then how bad this is. But like, I remember telling him one time, you were the whitest black person that I've ever met. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was awful. And, um, but that was, that was the reality. I thought of him as like the whitest black person I'd ever met. And this was, this is what changed, it actually changed it. And he actually used this as a thing to help me see how messed up my view of the world was. Yeah. He was, we lived in this subdivision of Austin, Texas. Um, and not even like a high skill, high class neighborhood, just a decent neighborhood. And um, he was living with me at the time. And one day I'm driving home and I see Jake's car pulled over by a cop. So I pull over and Jake looks as though he's like, he's like visibly shaken. Like, mm-hmm. you know, almost, almost like a ghost kind of thing. Yeah. Like he'd seen a ghost. And so I kind of pull up and go like, Hey man, like what's going on, you know, to the cop. And, and I was like, Hey, he lives with me. And suddenly the cop get changes completely. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being in that moment, like infuriated, like, Oh, suddenly you're going to be nice because he lives with a white guy. What the heck? And I remember Jake and I having several conversations about this where he talked about the systemic problems that even though he was quote unquote, the whitest, you know, black kid that you would know that he still had black skin. He still had to deal with the, with this stuff. And I was sort of like, um, I was really like heartbroken that it took something like that for me to see a system that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. And, um, and so that was sort of a journey for me too. And the reason why I bring that up is just that I think in general that people in the church have a hard time seeing systems because they're, they are typically made to help the people that uh, should be the ones that are the first ones to want to change it. So yeah, and that's, that was my experience for sure. Yeah. So um i'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned jake for you know a couple of reasons because one that's my boy like um jake and i like i i was doing my own music when uh when we were at liberty and uh like he was you know we did a band together and like he was like since day one that was just a good kid that was a little brother because you know i was probably like seven eight years older than him when i got to college anyway because i was in a cult for four years and i was working for four years prior to that so like you know so i was like eight years older than everybody when i was there but um jake was just one of those one of those kids that you know i like i, I saw him i thought he was cool you know and you know like i, I locked locked in with him whatever it, it was it was a privilege just to have him and my band to see that one he was able to you know be a part of your ministry that he was able to go on elevation and do stuff like it's just like I'm just blown away at how I had a lot of talented people that was a part of you know the music stuff that I was doing and they've gone off and just done some amazing things but Jake overall as a person one of the most harmless people I know um like I mean he's just like you said he's a clean-cut dude like I mean he's very put together well-mannered everything like that I mean it was just you know you would you would expect that this experience wouldn't happen to him just solely because, well, he's still a good guy. You know, he's still a clean cut. You know, he's just, you know, he's not, he's respectful, but at the end of the day, he is still a black man. And it's just a matter of, um, I'm glad you were able to learn from that experience. You you know, I mean, you're not the first person to say it. You're not the last person to say it. It's been said to me, people have said to me, you know, man, you're an Oreo, man. You're the whitest black person I know. I'm blacker than you. I'm like, okay, cool. So when, we get pulled over and they say nothing to you and they're grilling me, you know, to the third degree. Remember that, keep that same energy when you right. say those things, because at the end of the day, 
you saying that you're blacker than me, you're thinking of caricatures or stereotypes based on right. things that you've heard in the media or in the news or on movies and stuff like that. And that's fucked up. At the end of the day, that is a fucked up thing to think about or even say because you think it's funny, but it's not. Man, my blackness has been questioned for years because I do not, um, because I'm quote, because I'm not a quote unquote thug, because I don't bang, because I, you know, because I don't have all this other stuff, X, Y, Z, and things like that. And it's like, is that really what you think of us that we have to, you know, not have a job just to be on the, on the, in the streets, either in jail with, you know, multiple baby mamas? Like, first off, that's, that, that's a very, low and petty way of thinking to begin with because white people have that same exact experience on the other side but you think of it more because it's just you know it's just highlighted more in our communities than other communities and second of all yeah exactly i mean it, it just it has but then second of all it's just a matter of the fact that you have the gall or even you know just the boldness to even say that out loud and think that we shouldn't have a reaction to it because again if we respond in anything other than laughing and just letting it slide then we're the angry black man we're the angry stereotype that we're playing now we're playing into the stuff that they're talking about and it's just like the biggest problem or the biggest place where that does happen is in church you don't know how many times that i've had people come up to me and say what's up brother and i'm just like why are you talking like that like it's like well i'm just trying to relate just say hi how are you what are things that you like because i don't talk in slang like that around y'all because i don't have to yeah i code switch because i have to try to adapt but don't do it the other way because at that point you're making fun of me you're not doing it you know it's not cool it's not you know it's not relatable it's just it's offensive you know and it's just when people start understanding that and they're not talking about well stop being you're taking it so sensitive and everything like that why are you like that then a lot of growth can occur but you know i mean there's just it's just the simple things like that where if people would not if people would understand it's just kind of just grasp why we have a problem with that as much because after everything else that we have to do to try to fit into these white spaces just to fit in the shit that we have to put up with if people would just have an understanding just sit down and think about it for a minute and stop trying to justify it and make it seem well i was just being you know it's just i was just goofing it was just funny it was just a joke yeah man but like it's not funny and if Christians are supposed to be better above the, you know, everything else. You're supposed to be held to higher standard and expectation. The stuff that we experience outside of the church should not be the stuff that we experience inside the church. Correct. But nine times out of 10, we well, experience th- it twice as much. I think, I think that maybe the problem that I see with a lot of the systems in church, and I think that this plays into it. I, I think that number one, it's undeniable that the evangelical church is uh, an almost holy white space. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I think that um, as much as we would like to believe that, um, as much as we would like, uh, you know, when when I was in it, I really wanted to believe that because my church had 25% African Americans and we had 30% Hispanic and our church was, you know, white people were a plural, plurality, a plurality in my church, but they were not the majority in my church. And I just thought how, I, you know, I was so proud of how we were doing that. And yet we tokenized, you know, and I had, and I, and I didn't understand because again, like, I, I think that one of the things that I, I want to be able to do with people who don't understand situations we don't know what we don't know right like Mm -hmm. and we can't know i think that the problem though within the church and really within you know i think american ism in general is we have trained people to not only be ignorant which ignorance is actually not a bad thing ignorance is like not knowing what you don't know is not a bad thing and yet we have number one we have uh we have demonized ignorance which ignorance is not a bad thing willful ignorance is a bad thing but what we have done is that we have demonized ignorance and then we have taught people to dig in and go into willful ignorance because then at some point because they're strong they act strong they must be strong and i think as i watch like i remember having a conversation as Jake sort of helped me see some stuff, I was really great. Uh, honestly, he's still one of my best friends today. Yeah. Uh, in spite of our age difference, in spite of like the differences in lifestyles and all that kind of stuff, like 
I'll just text him every now and then and we'll laugh our butts off and then we'll talk about something serious. And um, he is one of the people who I am most grateful for because he has challenged me and challenged my thinking and changed me in ways that uh, I didn't deserve to be changed in. And, um, and so like one of the things that I remember there was a conversation that I had with my pastor at the time where Jake had pointed out some stuff where, um, and I don't want to tell his story, but he had pointed out some stuff that was problematic with how we treated black people in, especially on stage. Right. And so I brought this to my pastor and man, it was met with probably the most difficult, like talking to that I've ever received. And then Jake had a similar conversation and basically got talked down to by the same old white man that, you know, yelled at me for standing up for Jake. And that was sort of like the beginning of, I look back in the time, uh, I think that there was a lot of wonderful things that happened while I was at that church. I think that I met um, one of the greatest mentors of my life. I met Jake, you know, who's one of my best friends. Uh, I'm grateful for my time at that church, but I began to realize uh, around that time that things were coming to an end at, at that thing for me. And what I didn't realize what is that it actually was the beginning of the end of, um, it was the start of a deconstruction away from the church, and it was a start of deconstruction away from faith mm-hmm. that I didn't realize that those conversations that I was having with Jake were like the seeds of me going, man, there are these systems in the church that aren't right. And I don't know if there's a way to fix them Yeah, and without starting over. And then that led to really digging in and studying and really going after some stuff and going like, I don't know. Like, so I, like, I don't really talk about my faith all that much anymore because, you know, I was a Christian artist and was a pretty successful Christian artist. And when I wrote that music, I think, you know, when I wrote the music that I wrote and I wrote the worship music that I wrote, I believed that stuff wholeheartedly. Like I never wrote anything fake. In fact, I, my managers were like angry at me often because I would not write stuff that wasn't real to me. And, um, the place that I'm at now though, is I've, I've sort of reached this place that I have sort of adopted the term apatheist. Yeah. Where, Um, I think because of the religious trauma, because of everything I've gone through, not just in, you know, Bob Jones and the IFB and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, it's in churches. It's all the same. In my mind, what I experienced at the church that I worked at with Jake was very, not very different at all from what I experienced in the IFB, to be honest, like different shades. It was a different sort of color, like they're coloring with different crayons, but it's the same. They're still coloring the same picture. You know what I mean? And, um, and so I began to sort of come to this place where I've sort of adopted this term apatheist, where uh, I believe that when I live out the words of Jesus and when I live out the fruit of the Spirit, my life is better and the life of the people around me is better. And so I try to do that. But anything beyond that, anything beyond those, like, you know, anything that is beyond that, I, I give no shits about, I don't care. I just don't care. Like, if you say to me, you have to go to church this many times a year to uh, be a good Christian, I go, I don't give a shit. If you say to me, you know, you can't be gay and, you know, and, um, and be a Christian, I go, I don't give a shit. You know, like whatever the issue is, you say it, whatever the thing is, I don't give a shit. I don't care. I don't care. Like, like the idea of you trying to get to heaven by, you know, being this good person or by pleasing God in some way, like, I, I don't care about that anymore. The thing, the thing that the faith journey that I'm on, the place that I'm at is, um, I believe now that if there's a God, that God wants me to take care of my family and he wants me to love my family and he wants to be present with my family. And he wants me to love the people around me. And I think that um, I look at the fruit of the American evangelical church and I do not see much good fruit at all. And if, if God's word is true, if you believe that God is who he says he is, that should be a problem for Christians. I recently had an interaction with a Christian where 
he told me that I was a false prophet. And I was like, I'm not a false prophet at all. Like, I don't believe anything that you're talking about. I don't like, I don't claim to be a Christian at all. And he just kept going down this path. And I literally at one point just stopped and I said, Hey, what do you think you're doing? Like legitimately, I, I, I'm not, I'm, this is not a rhetorical question. I'm, I'm legitimately wondering what you think you're doing because if you say that your job is to bring people to Christ, I've just told you that I don't believe in the thing that you say that I should believe in to, you know, be a Christian. So in order to do that, what then are you going to do? And he said, I don't care if you go to hell or not. And I went, you know, in reality, I think that if people have the choice, this is, this is, this is probably a little bit of a cynical view. And I try not to, I, I personally don't allow much cynicism in my life, but I do have some cynicism around the church still. And I do believe that the average person who goes to church, the average person who goes to church really does just want to see Jesus and they want their life to be better and they want to serve God. I think that that's true. Yeah. I think that, that, um, most people who lead in church, I think that really what they want is they want for, um, they want to feel like they have power and they want to feel like they have control. And when they, if they, if I'm not willing to give that to them, then uh, it doesn't matter if I go to hell or not. And it doesn't matter if you go to hell or not. It doesn't matter if anybody goes to hell or not. All that matters to them is that they can pull the wool over who they want to pull the wool over. And I understand that's a little bit cynical, but that's sort of where I've landed. So yeah, man, that's sort of my response to uh, religious trauma. I would like to believe that at some point that maybe that'll change, but I've been wishing that for like this, like I left, I, the last time I attended church was in uh, December of 2018. And so for me, it's been three and a half years now where for the first like two years, I literally almost every Saturday would pray, Hey, let me wake up. God, just let me wake up tomorrow. and want to go to church. Just let me wake up tomorrow and want to go to church. Like, let me desire this thing again. But I'm not going to go until I until you show me that I need this, yeah. and never once. So anyway, dude, thanks so much for having me on the program, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, and I, I appreciate everything you shared. I think um, you you hit a lot of uh, rather um, wow. I mean, amazing points. Obviously, you know the the trauma that you experienced and a lot of the stuff that you know um that you went through and uh, you know obviously there was a lot going on with with jenny and you know a lot of it you know should have been resolved and stuff but obviously it just got it escalated to a point where it shouldn't have but you know it's just like there's so many things that happen you know in her life in your life and you know in the lives of others or whatever with the biggest impact but you could see with you know with the mom there when she made the decision in order to make sure that my husband's ministry remains intact I am willing to take out my child and myself in order to maintain that. And even as you mentioned those names, obviously I'm like using my phone, Googling or whatever. He ended up resigning anyway. So it's just like, you didn't keep the ministry intact. You know, it's just like it, it damaged, you know, I'm sure it damaged him for life. Uh, you know, your life is gone. I mean, it's just, there's, there's so much there. And obviously we, you know, we could take time to unpack that. We'd be here for hours of doing that. Um, you mentioned a lot of things that were going on with, you know, how you stood up for racism and stuff and how that was batted down, you know, know um you know our boy jake stood up and you know it's just like the old white guard you know they just they love keeping things traditionally intact the way that they do and if you rise against it um you you're met with you know their full wrath and stuff yeah i know that wholeheartedly um but just seeing that and hearing your story you know i mean i appreciate it i have i think i've gained even more respect from you other than what i've already had and stuff that i've seen you post um on facebook that obviously rubs some people the wrong way or whatever it's just that you know the way that you carry yourself and you conduct yourself um it's obvious that you are living up to the things that you're saying here in this podcast so thank you for that i appreciate you being willing to take a stand and you know and just like you said just saying i don't give a shit you know you can keep saying these things and try to you know make me feel a certain way but i don't, I don't give a shit about it like i mean it's not going to hold me down these things do not weigh me down because that's something i've had to i've had to deal with that a lot myself i have not stepped in you know in a, in a church building since uh, I want to say March of 2020 because of the pandemic and everything like that. And um, I don't have regrets. I miss fellowship. I miss, you know, people. But at the end of the day, I don't miss everything else that went along with it. I was a part of 10 different ministries, including the cult that I was in. Um, you throw in Liberty University as well. And everything was just one terrible experience after another. And I'm sure there are good churches out there, like you said, but you shouldn't have to, like you said, 99 
um, looking for that one, you shouldn't have to go through so many bad experiences to find a good church. That's just not, that's not a good practice at all. Well, and the, it's just, I remember the moment for me was going into 2019, my wife and I had had a conversation because it's weird. My wife works at a church, so it's like weird conversations, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I said to her, I said, you know, Sarah, this is something that I've been processing through because we're trying to raise our children in a way that we're raising healthy and uh, functional adults someday. And if my daughter, and I just listed off the 10 experiences, the worst 10 experiences I've had at church. If my daughter came and she said, I've had 10 experiences with an organization that were like this, that caused trauma that caused me to uh, like feel as though I was less than to feel as though I couldn't live up to at times, maybe want to commit suicide at times, made me want to uh, at times, made me want to quit everything. It made me depressed, et cetera, et cetera. If my daughter came to me, I would be like, get the fuck out. Why are you staying in this thing? And yet, when it happens in church, the response that you get from people is just find a good one. Just find a good one. And I just go, yeah, well, yeah, I hope that if my daughter has bad experience with 10 men, eventually she can find a good man, but I'm not going to tell her to keep going after men right. until she can figure out what it is that's going on and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like I can't force my daughter. I would never ask my daughter to go back into a situation with an organization when she has control over going. And I, and that was literally like, I was like, okay, I'm just not going to go. And it'll feel weird. Like I remember, cause you know, it was like, you know, almost the end of football season. So it wasn't even like I was staying home to watch football. You know, <laughs> it wasn't even that, like, it was like, right. you know, football season was already almost over and it was weird, dude. Like, like, cause I would still wake up at freaking five 30 in the morning, six o'clock in the morning on Sunday mornings for the first like year and a half, you know, like, mm. It was weird, like not going and leading worship. It was weird. Um, And yet I look back on that and it's one of the most peacemaking decisions that I've ever had. I don't deal with the drama. I don't like my life has become so much better outside of church. And it's the exact opposite of what everyone said that it would be. And I think that in reality that if there is a God, which I'm not sure about again, you know, like, I hope there is because, you know, I know that I was born as a white kid in Southern, you know, America. And so I was made to believe in God from the time that I was born. Um, You know, and so there is a piece of me that really wants for God to be someone real. If there is a God, then I hope that he can see that like, man, I believed in him as hard as you could possibly believe in anything. And I served him, dude. I've, I told you the amount of money that I've given up over the years, like, to serve him. Like I turned down major label record deals. I turned down gigs. I turned down money upon money, upon money, upon money, upon money. I mean, at this point it's in seven figures that I've turned down down through the years. I figured it out one time, seven figures that I've turned down trying to do the right thing for God. Right. And I look at that and I go, if there's anyone who has sacrificed to be who a Christian, it is me. And the happiest I've ever been was when I let it all go. The last three years have been the happiest of my life in so many ways. And I just go, man, like, I'm not an, like, I'm not an evangelist. I mean, you're on my Facebook page. I don't ever talk about it. Yeah. I'm not trying to convince people. I don't want to change people from faith. Uh, in fact, I wish sometimes that I had faith to be honest, like, but I think that um, the place that I'm in is I just go like, look, I have religious trauma. I've worked through it in a healthy way. And on the other side of working through it, I came to the place where I didn't need that thing to begin with. I feel whole as a person. And I think that maybe the piece of religion that feels hard to me to want to go back to is this idea that you're not whole, that you need something to help you be whole. And I look at my life right now and I'm, and I have family and I have love and my marriage is the best it's ever been. And I feel like my kids are incredible. And I just go, man, you know, sure. There've been hard times where my first reaction was to pray. Like, it's weird. Like friends will be like, 
Hey, can you pray for this person? I was like, I don't really pray anymore, but you know, whatever agnostics do, I guess that's what I'm doing. Like I'm thinking about your thing. Like I'm sending you good vibes, whatever that is. It feels so <laughs> weird sometimes, you know, it's like yep. trying on new shoes, so to speak, you know? So anyway, that's sort of my experience and uh, I could ramble about that forever, but yeah, man, I appreciate you yeah. having me on and thanks for the kind words, man. Hey, yeah, man, for sure, man. And, and, and thank you. Thank you for taking the time to kind of share uh, your own story, man. And I, um, I hope that the, you know, people who listen to this podcast, um, that they're able to gain something out of it, out of it. You know, it's just at the end of the day, you got to make the best decisions for you. Um, there's going to be that fear of just stepping out into the unknown and not sure, you know, what's going to be out there or whatever, you know, because you're going to miss so many things. But at the, at the end of the day, if you're in a part of a, a, an abusive system that just keeps lying to you and giving you all sorts of bullshit and you know and you know it's not right take the step to start walking away and there's yeah. a community of people out there i promise you there are people out there who have made those same decisions a lot of people are deconstructing right now going through the same exact thing you're not alone you're not doing this by yourself um just take that first step and you'll you'll see that that piece that you're looking for more than likely is outside of that hurt harmful and uh, abusive situation chris thank right, you man. so much man Thanks i appreciate so it very much our right, brother Hey, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. To get updates on new episodes, please subscribe. Do us a favor, share the podcast on social media with your friends, family, and enemies. Leave a rating or review for others to be able to discover the content, whatever you want. We just appreciate your time and energy. Thank you again, and have a good one.